0: reflections on life at the end of time part four the fourth talk in the series was presented by jack crabtree
1: on july nineteenth two thousand fifteen at reformation fellowship
0: the copyright for this recording is held by gutenberg college inc two thousand fifteen gutenberg college is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www. Dot gutenberg.edu. this material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes subject to the inclusion of this introduction all other rights reserved technical difficulties resulted in
1: reduced sound quality for the latter half of the recording i'm just going over some reflections on life at the end of the present age And eventually, I want to make some suggestions about what I think, if we are, in fact, living at the end of the present time, what do we do about that? How should we live? How should we think about that? I haven't got there yet. That'll probably be not today, but next week. But that's what we've been talking about. We're having kind of a conversation. I am at a point right now, though, where I'm going to run out of weeks before I run out of notes, so I'm going to try to make some headway today through my notes. So we may have a little less discussion than we have in the previous weeks. So I think I'm at a point now where we can... I ask the question, are we at the end of the present time? And we have spent some time defining exactly what I mean by the end of the present time. The answer that I'm proposing is yes. I think we are at the end of the present time. What I want to do first is answer an objection, an obvious objection that could be raised to that. And that objection is... But no one can ever know such a thing. And usually the kind of thing that we think about when we raise that objection is we remember Jesus saying, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man. And so our head goes, well, if Jesus, who's the Son of God, who knew as much as anyone has ever known, didn't know the day or the hour, who do you think you are that you know the day or the hour? And we tend to get this perspective that what the Bible is actually teaching is that the end of the present time is actually unknowable. Well, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, and I don't think that's true, and I want to look at some evidence for that. First of all, notice that Jesus is saying what he's saying. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man. Jesus is speaking at a particular point in history, on a particular occasion, from a particular standpoint somewhere between 30 and 40 A.D. probably. Well, between 30 and 40 A.D., before he's ascended, before he's been crucified, before anything has happened, he's saying to them, Son of Man doesn't know the day or the hour. No one knows the day or the hour. Well, from that standpoint, of course he didn't. How could he? Even if he knew all the prophecy. We can clearly see this in retrospect, There are a few thousand years between when he's saying that and the end of time, at least a few thousand years, right? So even if he thoroughly understood the whole timeline and how it was going to go down, he didn't know where that fit into the rest of history. That's what he's saying to his disciples. I can't tell you right now as I stand here when the end of time is going to be. Well, that doesn't mean that we can't know from some future standpoint when we're at the end of the present time. And in fact, as I will go on to suggest in a moment, there are plenty of things that Jesus said that suggested that he thought there would be a standpoint from which you would be able to know and that you should pay attention when you are in that standpoint and you can see the things happening. We'll get there in a second. There's a second objection that people are likely to raise, and that is people have been predicting the end of the age from 1,000 A.D. on. And that's true. In modern times, every five years you get a new prediction, right? They've accelerated. So people have always been saying, I think we're there. I think we're at the end of time. I think we're at the end of the present age. I think this is it this time. So why am I just joining the chorus of futile predictions that have been made? Well, again, in retrospect, well, not even in retrospect, we should have been able to tell even at the time the predictions were being made the predictions were being made for what I would call superficial reasons. A superficial reason would be things get crazy in the world. Dramatic events happen, spectacular events happen, an earthquake here, a disaster here, an eclipse here, an eclipse there, everywhere an eclipse, eclipse. There's all these things happening that are kind of attention-grabbing, and they have the superficial effect of saying, Okay, you've got my attention now. Maybe something big is, a, ah, maybe it's the end of the world. It might be the end of the world happening. But that's just a superficial reason to respond by thinking that the end of the world is happening because famines and earthquakes and disaster and persecution and tragedy has happened throughout the ages. We all know that. That's just the fabric that history is made out of. That's not a reason to think that we're at the end of the age. The only non-superficial reason for thinking that the end of the age is coming is you have studied and understood and grasped the prophets. You've got a hold of the prophetic picture, and all of a sudden you begin to see, come into clear focus, here's the picture the prophets paint, here's life outside the front door, and they merge. They begin to correspond with each other. That's not a trivial reason for thinking that you're at the end of the present time. That's a substantial reason. For thinking that you're at the end of time. So that's true. People have been predicting the end of time for millennia, but they have never had the reasons to make the claim that I'm going to argue we have today. So I don't think I'm just joining the line of one more futile prediction of the end of the present time. We had a spectacular example here not that long ago. If any of you followed the prediction of the end of the coming of Jesus by Harold Camping, the radio preacher who made a prediction, and he even had billboards here in Eugene. I don't remember what the billboard said, but basically the end of time is here, and gave a date, right, that Jesus is going to return on this date, October or something. Well, in his case, I think he had a non-superficial reason for his prediction, But I think he was wrong. And I knew he was wrong. I didn't pay attention to the many times. I only paid attention to this last time. But with the last time, I think I knew enough about his teaching that I wasn't really expecting Jesus to return when he said he was going to return. The reason being, if you watch his methodology, his methodology was flawed. He was a former engineer who was looking at the Bible as this coded message from God with number codes and symbolic codes that were cueing him in to this basically coded message about when the end was going to come. And if you do the calculations meticulously, he could come up with exactly the date when Jesus was going to come back. Well, there's nothing in the Bible that would ever suggest that we should treat the Bible as a coded message. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests God has hidden an exact prediction of the exact hour and day when Jesus is going to return. Already, I'm not with him. He's turned the Bible into something that it is not. Was he sincere? I think he was utterly sincere. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think unlike some people throughout history, I don't think he was a charlatan. I think he was utterly and completely sincere, but he just had not completely misguided interpretive methodology. And I knew that even as he was making the prediction. That's not the way to find out when when Jesus is returning. So I'm not impressed with his prediction. I don't think Jesus is going to return on that day. So all that's to say, just because mistakes have been made in the past, and in retrospect we can look and see how and why they have made the mistakes that they have made, doesn't mean that it's impossible intrinsically for a human being to know when we are nearing the end of the present time. And I'm arguing I think it is intrinsically possible to know when we are nearing the end of the present time. If you want to turn with me, you don't have to, but I'm going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 here for a second. The first 11 verses of chapter 5, Paul says, Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And increasingly, perhaps not universally, but increasingly, I'm convinced that when the biblical authors say the day of the Lord, they have exactly the same day in mind every time. Now, there may be exceptions. There may be rare exceptions. But whenever they just throw out the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, they expect the people they're writing to to know what they're talking about, and they treat it as if it's a known entity. Now, I know there are Bible interpreters who will come along and say, the day of the Lord is whenever the Lord wants to act. I don't think that's the way they use the phrase, though. The day of the Lord corresponds to this grand, incredible climax to this present time when all kinds of stuff is going to happen, including the return of Jesus, the wrath of the Lamb that Revelation describes, where God is going to finally deal decisively with his own people, the Jews. Many of them are going to be destroyed because of their unrighteousness and their unbelief. But miraculously, God is going to save the remnant of those who are righteous and who believe on that day. And there's going to be a transformation of life on earth on that day. It's a big deal. Well, that's the day of the Lord that the prophets are talking about. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Okay, so so far it sounds like exactly the opposite of what I'm saying. Nobody knows it's coming. It's going to sneak up on you because it's like a thief in the night, Right. It's like that earthquake that's going to hit the Pacific Northwest and wipe us all out. We don't know when it's coming, so it could really sneak up on us and devastate us. That's what the day of the Lord is going to be like. Yeah, that's what he says, but now he goes on. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, okay? But you're an exception. For the world, it's going to be like a thief in the night that takes them by surprise, but you're not like the rest of the world. They're the sons of darkness, but you are children of light. You understand. You have insight. You have wisdom. You have perspective. And so, what does that mean? I think what he means by that is you know enough that when the signs of his coming begin to make themselves evident, you'll be ready and you'll expect it and you'll anticipate it because you're not ignorant. You're not in darkness. You're not without understanding like the rest of the world is. So, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. So notice the exhortation. Because we're not ignorant and we know the day is coming, let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. It should sober us up because the day of the Lord is quench time. That it's for many 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 people on the world, it's going to be the point of the determination of your eternal well-being and that should sober you up. Okay? That this is not fun and games, this is not just stuff we're talking about, this is not just stories we're telling ourselves. This is where God is going to enter into history. And when God enters into history, a determination is going to be made about your and my destiny. Not everybody, as we have discussed in the last few weeks, some pe- a lot of people will survive to make a decision again later. But a lot of people are going to find this day the day of the point of no return. For those who are asleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Okay, there's a lot of things we could talk about, but the main point for going to this passage right now is I don't see how we can understand Paul's argument any other way than when we get to that point, the children of light are not going to be caught off guard, but it's only the children of darkness are. Well, how can that be? If we can't have some kind of sense by reading the signs, that the signs are pointing to how imminent the day of the Lord is, then there's no way we couldn't get caught off guard. But he's saying we won't, not if we're children of light. I'm going to turn to Matthew 16 here. This is now Jesus speaking. In Matthew 16, he says, starting with verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Okay, this is a very simple, this is not talking about the day of the Lord. This is talking about the coming of the Messiah. But just like the day of the Lord, no prophet ever predicted exactly the day and the time, the year, even the decade. Well, that may not be true. I take that back. But you didn't have a pinpoint prediction of when the Messiah was going to come. But you did have some indications of signs that the Messiah was here or was coming or had arrived. And Jesus saying... If you just look and read the signs, my claiming to be the Messiah is not outrageous. You know how to read the signs in the sky, but you don't know how to read the signs of the times because the times are ripe in the plan of God and in the story of God, the purposes of God. The times are ripe for the Messiah to come on the scene, and I'm claiming to be him. That shouldn't surprise you if you were reading the signs of the times. And then in Matthew 24... It's a long passage of relevance to us, but let me just look at a portion of that, starting with verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. "'Heaven and earth will pass away, "'but my words will not pass away. "'But of that day and hour no one knows, "'not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, "'but the Father alone. "'For the coming of the Son of Man "'will be just like the day of Noah. "'For as in those days before the flood "'they were eating and drinking, "'marrying and giving in marriage, "'until the day Noah entered the ark. "'And they did not understand until the flood came "'and took them all away.' so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, the taking them all away is taking them all away to death in condemnation and judgment. They didn't know until the floodwaters were actually killing them that this was the judgment. Then, this is the way it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. The Son of Man, too, is coming in judgment on the day of the Lord, that great and terrible day of the Lord. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken in judgment, condemnation, And one will be left. One will be destroyed. One will survive. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken in judgment. And one will be left. One will survive. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Okay. Again, Jesus is speaking here as if it's intrinsically possible for you to have a clue about what's happening in the world around you and to wake up and notice the signs and in anticipation of them, know that he's right at the door, that he is near, that it's imminent. But if we're not awake, then of course, just like in the time of Noah, the judgment is going to come upon the world and most of the world will be clueless about what's about to happen until it happens. Okay. Any questions or comments about that before I... The next thing I want to talk about is why do I think that we are drawing near to the end? Thank you. This passage, I often heard it, the one taken is referred to as the rapture. Yeah, no. But looking back with the ark, you uses the word taken those exactly people. Exactly so the it's same word. So yeah. it's interesting because I've always read that with the interpretation that I heard, that people taken were raptured and the others are Yeah, I just, that's our theology being imposed because if you just let the passage go, he's just used exactly the same Greek word to describe the people who were destroyed in the flood as taken in judgment. Yeah. Okay. Pressing on then, so why do I think the end is drawing near? One very trivial point, and two not so trivial. The relatively trivial one is that all the preconditions have been met. The nation of Israel has been reestablished, it's there in the land that God promised. There is a government there. There is a people there that are intent on staying there. Israel exists. Now, if we don't think historically, that doesn't sound like a big deal. But they were gone for millennia. They were blotted out and eliminated except for a very, very, very tiny, relatively tiny group of Jews who were in the land of Israel throughout the time. For the most part, the Jews had been scattered to the four winds and were not in the land. And certainly, there was no viable Jewish government in the land. They were always under the thumb of one group or another. Now they are their own state, independent, free, self-ruling in the land. Back in the 1800s, you have all kinds of theologians who didn't even dream of that as a possibility. And their theology reflects the fact that they looked at the geopolitics of the world. There wasn't no Israel And so they read the prophetic predictions in the light of the fact that, well, whatever it is, there is no Israel at the end, so we've got to do something else with that. It must be the church. Whenever the prophets talk about Israel, we must be talking about the church, because there is no Israel. It wasn't until the middle of the 20th century that Israel was reborn and brought back into existence. So historically, that's actually a huge, big deal, but we're so accustomed to it that it strikes us as somewhat trivial. Second precondition is the gospel has been preached to all the nations. In Matthew 24, a part I didn't read, 14, this is Jesus speaking again to his disciples about the end times. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So he predicates the coming of the end to the spread of the gospel to all the nations. Well, arguably, that's done. There are probably a handful of Stone Age tribe Filipino jungle dwellers who don't know the gospel. But by and large, for the most part, across the world, all the nations have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that condition has been met. Now, a lot of people think that there's another precondition that needs to be met, and that is a temple needs to exist in Jerusalem. But that's contingent on a particular interpretation of a handful of passages. And I'm not convinced, I'm actually convinced to the contrary, that those passages are even talking about a temple being in Jerusalem at the end. I don't think that's true. So I don't think the rebuilding of the temple actually is a precondition for Jesus returning. If I'm right about that, then all the preconditions have been met. It's only a matter of everything being put in place and the end time scenario then being played out. That's all that remains to happen from a prophetic perspective, from the standpoint of what has been predicted. So that's a relatively trivial point. It's not an unimportant one, but it's a pretty obvious one, I think. Not so obvious, and this is a big deal to me. If we look at Second Thessalonians, well, I'm going to look at 1 through 12. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Okay, so what is he talking about? I think what he's talking about is what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is his return to reign over Israel in the millennial kingdom here on earth. With regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, I think that is what in Corinthians he talks about where those in the graves will be raised up and they will meet Jesus in the sky as he's returning and those who are alive at that time will join them and meet them in the sky. There's this incredible welcoming party to Jesus as he comes back and it's at that welcoming party that we who were dead or alive are transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And the mortal takes on immortality. We receive our eternal immortal bodies and existence at that point, or at the very best, or at the very least, a transition into our eternal bodies at that point. We take on immortality in any case. I think that's the gathering together to him. So, with regard to that, he says, We request that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Somebody is, I wish we knew better and more accurately what the actual content of the claim was. We don't. But some kind of claim was being made that involved or implied that the day of the Lord had already happened. And I'm guessing that the reason that that would shake you from your composure is, imagine in our situation, if someone told us, well, the rapture happened last night, were you, <laughs> were you aware of that? <laughs> Whoops, <laughs> well, where was I? How come I didn't get to join in on that? I don't know if that's what's going on, but that would certainly shake your composure. It's something along those lines that is bothering them. And Paul is trying to reassure them by saying, I don't want you to be upset Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The falling away comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That is, Jesus is not going to return and you're going to be gathered together to meet him in the sky until you have the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, on the scene. And if he's not on the scene then it can't be that the gathering together and the coming of the Lord has already happened. So just stay tuned. Look for the man of lawlessness. That'll be your clue that we're drawing near. So unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God... That's one of the passages that people think means that the temple has to exist because he's going to take his place in the temple of God. But I'm inclined to take that as figurative. It has to do with who he thinks he is, not literally what he's going to do. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. This translation says, he who now restrains. That's okay. I would be more inclined to translate it, it that now restrains will be taken out of the way. I don't think it's a he so much as an it, but either way is fine. We'll talk about what that is in a second. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Okay, again, there's a lot we could talk about there. But the thing I want to focus on is that statement he makes, you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only that which now restrains will do so until it is taken out of the way, in order then the lawless one will be revealed. Okay, we're not privy to what Paul told them, the people in Thessalonica, But we do know what Jesus taught the disciples in the Upper Room Discourse. I'm going away, but don't freak out. Have no fear, for I have prayed that the Father send another parakletos to you, and namely the Spirit of Truth whom he will send, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I said and did and lead you into all truth. That's the Spirit of Truth, the parakletos, that he was going to send into the world. Why has the gospel spread throughout the world and to all the nations? Because God has committed himself to saving his elect, saving whom he will save, bringing them to him, drawing them to him, and incorporating them into what Paul calls variously the pleroma, the body of Christ, the people of God, the ecclesia, the assembly of God. Various people from every nation, every tongue, every corner of the earth have been brought into this people that are going to be eternally the people of God. How did that happen? Because God poured out his spirit into their hearts, opened up their hearts, made them open, receptive, humble enough, courageous enough, willing enough to believe and follow and obey the truth. That's done two things, it seems to me, throughout history. On the one hand, it's brought individuals and made authentic believers, what the Bible calls saints, authentic believers, real believers out of individuals. But because a significant number of individuals have taken the truth of God seriously, it's ultimately had a sociological effect in the world. It's brought civilization to mankind. Now, civilization's not all it's cracked up to be. It has a pretty ugly underbelly because human beings are depraved, rebels against God. They're evil, they're corrupt, they're liars, they're murderers, they're adulterers, they're cheats. And civilization always has its underbelly that's pretty ugly on the one hand. On the other hand, it sure beats what ancient history was like. There was a check on humanity and human evil and depravity that the world had never known before that time, just because of the sociological phenomenon that those people who actually really believed the truth were kind of these little billboards throughout the world pointing in the direction of taking God seriously and taking God's truth seriously, and taking God's righteousness seriously, and taking his goodness seriously, and it kind of gave people pause. Yeah, I can be evil, and people were evil, but I kind of feel bad about it because I know I'm actually wrong. This really is not what I should do. This is not what I should really be. And it kind of curbed man's evil and his appetites in an unprecedented kind of way. Well, what's going to happen when that's removed? Not only did the Spirit of God sanctify as individuals people who are going to become part of the people of God, but later in that same passage, Jesus says, The Spirit of truth, when He comes, will convince the world, not us believers, but the world, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, always having this nagging understanding of the reality of sin, the value of righteousness, and the condemnation that comes to people who are unrighteous is that curb, subjective curb, that is put on the human heart. It doesn't make a believer out of people, but it's this constant subjective from the inside reminder, this is kind of serious stuff here, the moral decisions you're making. Don't get it wrong. What if that's removed? What if all of a sudden the spirit of truth is no longer convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment? then that curb on human evil is removed and is taken away. I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about. You know what restrains him now. No one can stand up and say, I'm God and worship me, and I'm going to kill everyone who doesn't believe me, and so on. Even in our lifetime, a decade ago, that would have been unthinkable. No way human beings are that stupid, that gullible, that easily deceived that they would follow such a message. Well... Ten years ago, I couldn't have believed that. Yesterday, I can. Because we're seeing too much happen in the culture of the whole world around us where people are saying crazy things and believing crazy things and doing crazy things without any shame, without any embarrassment, without any sense that they are completely off-kilter. They're beginning to think evil is normal and evil is the new good. Why? My judgment is we are seeing before our very eyes the removal of the activity of God, the spirit of truth being poured out into the world and convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're seeing it before our very eyes. Well, it seems to me that's the critical next piece in the prophetic picture that Paul just described there. The critical next piece is the seedbed for the man of lawlessness needs to be put in place. And how does that seedbed get created? By withdrawing the spirit of truth, the activity of the spirit of truth, and abandoning man to their folly, their deception, their gullibility, and just abandoning them. So that's a big deal for me. As much as anything, that's the (laughs) seedbed that I think I see that I'm looking at and go. If the sky is red, I know that we have good weather coming. If I see the spirit of truth being withdrawn from the world, I know that the preparation is being made for the man of lawlessness to come on the scene. That's the basis for my claim that I think we're I think we're seeing the end of the present time, the first major sign. The second one, and then I'll take your questions. The second one is: it sure looks to me. Like, the players that are currently being put in place in the world fit the prophecies better than any alleged players that have ever been proposed. The Pope ain't it, the communists aren't it, Mao's not it, Kissinger wasn't it. (laughs) Reagan? Reagan wasn't it. Maybe George Bush, right? None of the proposed players have, have really fit you could try to really shoehorn them into the prophetic picture and go, yeah, well, maybe maybe if you squint right, you could see this dude as the Antichrist, or this group as being the ones who are going to set up one world government, or whatever else we claim. But now, before our very eyes, we're actually beginning to see players put in place who actually fit the biblical picture. Now, part of what we need to do is adjust our understanding of that picture, and I, I remember now how much we've talked about this, but adjust our picture of the end so that we recognize that the players that the prophets talk about are actually in the Middle East. They're not here in America. They're not in Europe. They're not in Russia. They're not in China. They're the neighbors of Israel. That's the most straightforward way to read the prophets. And we've always found a way to somehow make it America, Russia, and China, and those devils in Antarctica, or whatever. But we've always found a way to reinterpret it. But a straightforward reading of it is it's Edom, it's Moab, it's Egypt, it's Syria, Persia. The same players that played out as the enemy of God in the ancient time are going to be the same players that are going to be in play at the end of time. That's the straightforward way to read it. So that was the insight that I got by reading the books by Joel Richardson that I think I might have alluded to. On the side, I had a phone Conversation with my friend today to remind me that I better say this. I don't accept everything that Joel Richardson is saying in his books. He's not a divine determinist. I am. He's a dispensational premillennialist. I'm not. I don't accept their version of the prophetic picture. Premillennialism I do, but not the whole rapture, pre-trib rapture, seven years of tribulation, all that kind of stuff. I don't think that's the right way to interpret the prophets. So I'm not there with him. He's a Trinitarian. I'm not. You go right down the line and there's all kinds of significant differences between his theology and my theology. And I'm not recommending everything that he says. What I gained is this one significant insight and that is the Antichrist. It's Islam that is the engine that is driving the anti-God Energy again to wipe out Israel, to wipe out belief, to take over the world. Those are the bad guys in the prophetic picture at the end of time. Well, 30 years ago, if you had said, well, that what's really going to come down in the end is Islam, I would have laughed at you. Islam looked like it was dead as any kind of viable geopolitical force. It looked completely dead with the fall of the Ottoman Empire during World War I, because they allied with Germany, and the French and the British defeated the Ottoman the Turks, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. And for decades, it looked like Islam was a thing of the past, this kind of quaint relic from past times, this religion that was spawned and had a golden age and lived and met its demise in World <coughs> War One, and now it was gone. But we have seen an incredible resurgence in just the last couple decades. An incredible resurgence. One that who of us would have ever predicted. Very reminiscent of the picture and revelation of the beast with a number of heads. One head received a fatal wound but was restored from its fatal wound. And it's that... One possible interpretation, it's not crystal clear, but one possible interpretation is that's the head that's going to be the player in the end time. The one who received a fatal wound to the head and seemed to be dead, but was revived, was resuscitated. She looks like that could describe Islam to me. She seemed to be dead to geopolitics and all of a sudden there was no more relevant geopolitical force in the world today. That's pretty powerful. So we can talk more about that, but basically With the resurgence of fundamentalist Islam, we are seeing what looks to be exactly the right kind of ideology, religion, to bring to pass everything that the prophets predicted in their prophetic picture. So, those are the two big reasons for me. I see everything in place to play out exactly like the prophets predict as best I understand that and understand that I am not a student of prophecy so maybe I am all wet but as best I understand it it sure looks like the players are in place to play out that scenario and it sure looks like the last precondition has been met the withdrawing of the spirit of truth the world making way for the man of lawlessness. ok, questions, comments um, maybe I didn't hear you right Last
2: week, before I thought, may that, um, the Antichrist was going to be Jewish. The Antichrist did well. Um, the Antichrist. See, the
1: Antichrist is not a biblical term. Some people go to First John, where he talks about, "You've heard that Antichrist is coming, and now there are many Antichrists in the world." Antichrist is simply the opposition to Christ that has always been there and always will be there. That's what the term Antichrist actually means. It's not a person. The person that we're talking about, the one that Paul calls the man of lawlessness, is the beast in Revelation. It's a king or a prince in Daniel. He goes by a lot of different names, but he's never called the Antichrist. So what you have in the picture in Revelation are two individuals who are figure, a big beast and a little beast, a big beast who arises out of the sea, and a little beast who arises out of the land. The little beast who arises out of the land, I think, is Jewish. The land represents Israel. He emerges out of Israel and is basically a false messiah. So the false messiah is Jewish. But the false messiah encourages everyone to worship the other beast in Revelation.
0: And the other beast is Islam.
1: And he will be some kind of Islamic leader, caliph, or something.
0: And so, if you could remind us, what was being said about Islam, believing in Jesus, or, or Jesus as a prophet? And we have this Judaism and as a and Jesus as a false prophet, prophet merged
1: with Islam at that point. Because I think this false Messiah guy is going to come back and say, "Hey, everybody." You know me from history. I'm your Jesus, you know, the one that you Jews didn't like very much, and the one that Christians think is the Messiah. and So on. I'm Jesus, just a prophet. Muhammad is the great prophet, the last prophet, the final prophet, and we all need to do as Muhammad taught us. And you all are going to begin to live like good Muslims, or I'm going to kill you. The Jesus figure in Islamic eschatology and in Revelation is an enforcer. He's a brutal, vicious, <laughs> bloodthirsty enforcer who uses coercion to get people to follow the big beast, I think the caliph, leaving questions unanswered.
0: And the reason everyone's gonna fall for it because so many terrible things are happening, he's also going to be, in a sense, providing some kind of salvation from the yeah, okay, this is going to happen, I believe, if I
1: understand the picture rightly. I think all this is going to happen during a time where Israel has been conquered by the armies of the beast of the caliph. They've been conquered and they're being... gets put in Revelation and Jerusalem will be trod under the feet of the Gentiles for three and a half years. So I think it's during the time that They're being occupied by Islamic forces that basically they're going around and forcing conversions. Well, if you're a Jew and the choice is practice Islam or die, and you're a secular Jew, you're an unrighteous Jew, you're an unbelieving Jew, okay, you join your lot with Islam. What choice do you have? So, so sorry, just one last quick question. When you taught Revelation before, have you changed much? A little bit. I wasn't thinking the beast was Islam at that time. But if you go
0: back and, and look at your notes from Revelations, it will basically still be.
1: Basically, yeah, basically.
0: Just a question about uh, holding back uh, what we would call the spirit of truth. When that is taken out of the way, how do we have this much
1: Well, it won't be taken away from those who are being sanctified. See, what does it mean for the Spirit of Truth to come into the world? It's not like you can bottle it and sell it at Starbucks. It's not a substance. It's a metaphor for God's activity. It's a metaphor for what God is doing. So the pouring out of the Spirit of Truth is a metaphor for God is at this point in time committed to working in the hearts of individuals, those who are his, to sanctify them. Those who are not his, to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, what happens when God just plain stops doing that? He's no longer convicting the, um, the unbeliever of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's still sanctifying the believer, arguably. I don't see how we can go without him, him working in our hearts. Right. I guess I was thinking is it feels like then we're left on our own. Yeah. Whatever we have, we need to become Too often in theology, we've made the Spirit of God a commodity, and then we make absolute statements, like he's either here or he's not here, or you either have him or you don't have him. It's not that simple. These are all just metaphors that are trying to get us to understand the role of God in our lives.
3: Like being filled with the Spirit. Yeah. Like yeah. A, or the indwelling of the Spirit. Yeah. So when we think about
1: God taking that away it feels like it would be taken away from us right right. but I think that's the right way to think about it it's not a commodity that's either that God is either giving or not giving he's working his work differently in different individuals but then on the grander scale on the broader scale what's happening in the world well if he stopped convicting the world in general of sin, righteousness and judgment it's as if the spirit of truth isn't even here in the world anymore. Just a picture of that.
0: I have a question about the temple. And
1: why do you think that's uh, liberal? Why in Thessalonians, I think it's not liberal. Because Paul in 2 Thessalonians seems to be referring to the prophecy in Daniel, I think we're doing is Daniel 8, 11 11 or 12. And what Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians is who this guy thinks he is. He thinks he's God. Every other God that he should be worshipped, no one is more important or a bigger deal than he is. And that's what Daniel 11 is talking about. Daniel 11 says nothing about a temple, or sitting and taking a seat in the temple. So if he's saying the same thing, and in fact getting his picture from the Daniel 11 passage, then I think when he says taking his seat in the temple of God, I think that's a metaphorical way of saying he thinks he's equal to Yahweh himself. His self-concept is that he's as important and as exalted right. is that he should be able to march into the holy of holies and live there. I'm reminded that Jesus used an expression: the Pharisees sit in the chair of
0: Moses, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do what they say, but yeah. they don't do what they do. Yeah, great, great example. I mean, maybe
3: there was a little chair, but I think he meant with the same authority. I, to hear speech. Yeah. I was hoping some of the answers, the questions I had, would get answered before he uh, got to me. <laughs> it is not I a... Mean, oh, the theology that I was taught, which was basically the dispensationalist. Dispensationalism that you were talking about earlier was that the Spirit of God it was the, the restrainer, as you have taught, and that the restrainer could not be removed from the world without the rapture because the believers would have to go with it. So that's one explanation for how the Spirit of God can be removed from the world without it being removed from believers is that we go with Okay, let me, let me stop you there. So notice how we're thinking about that when we make that kind of claim.
1: We're thinking of it in those absolutist terms that I was talking about. The Spirit is either here or He's not here. He's either present in history or He's not present in history. And so the argument is, if the Spirit of God is inside and ever say that that perspective is actually thinking of the Spirit as located inside of me. So if the Spirit is inside of me, who is a believer, then he has not been withdrawn, has he? That's the argument. But part of
3: that is that his activity through believers is, is what is actually restraining sin in the world.
1: Okay. But we know that's not true, right? It's not merely the Spirit's activity through believers because if the Spirit of God does not open the eyes of people to see the truth and what is happening, then they persecute you and crucify you. They don't follow your example. So the Spirit is also working in them, if not to sanctify them, at least to give them pause, at least to tutor their conscience enough that it curbs their unbelief and their depravity enough to... Allow the gospel to go forth as it happens. So, what if he continues to work in you, but he's no longer working in me? Then you can evidence the fruit of the spirit and live a Christ-like life and a godly life all you want, and I'm going to hate you for it. It's not going to give me pause so much as it is going to just infuriate me and make me want to kill you.
3: And part of this is I'm um, bringing it up because, or the justification, I'm not necessarily advocating, it. but. I um, Question on a question. Uh, you mentioned, as you were reading, the f- falling away, mm-hmm. and so I felt like you glossed over that. What is the falling away, and is that something you see as already having happened,
1: or something that we're in the process of, or something? I think it's happening before our very eyes, and it's ultimately a falling away from truth, and that's what's interesting to me. I don't think there has ever been a time in all of... There have always been unbelievers. There have always been unrighteous people and wicked people. There's always been skeptics. There's always been people who don't know and who are opposed to the truth. That's not new. But I think this is unprecedented. We now live in a world where the cultures of the world are not even believing in the very concept of truth any longer. They still use the word, but they redefine it. Truth is whatever I say that it is. Truth is whatever the government says that it is. Truth is whatever your peers say that it is. Uh, Philosopher, our philosopher John Rawls is famous for having said at one point, truth is whatever my peers will let me get away with saying. So
3: you feel that this is a general sociological thing in the world not for the church? What do you mean,
1: not for the Church? Right. Uh, oh, the falling away. The falling yes. away. Yes. yes. Well, but you'll see, I'm sure we'll see the effects of it in the Church. You'll see all kinds of capitulation by the Church. And, we're, and, and we are seeing capitulation by yeah. the Church, for in, in particular in issues of ethics. Exactly. And morality. So, uh, yeah, I can see that. And for the dumbest reasons. That's what's incredible. it's That's what's breathtaking is it's not because of good arguments. It's because they've been bumper-stickered into it. Yeah,
3: no, not really any. any.
1: No sense. It's just, no a,
3: just substance pressure character. from the world. Exactly. Yeah. It seems also to me, and I know that this is different than the way you look at Revelation, but as I read in about the seals, mm-hmm. we have a conqueror going out to conquer, a nationalistic zeal, which seems to describe to me very well, World War One. Then we have the next seal, which is the red horse that makes war and takes peace from the earth, and to it is given a tremendous you know, sword. Sounds to me a lot like World War Two and the the uh, nuclear uh, weapons that. Began at that time in the world, for since. Mm-hmm. Then you have the, the death and the famine. I haven't researched those historically, but I can see how they fit into the world scenario or history since then. And now we're seeing something that's unprecedented for five, seven hundred, am hundreds of years, as we're seeing uh, believers beheaded for the name of Christ, which sure sounds like the fifth seal. So I throw it out there as
1: so possible. As possible, my reasons are not are more internal to the comparison of Revelation with Jesus teaching in the end times. But what we're talking about here does not hinge on that at all.
2: Okay. Difficulty. I was raised in the church, for better or of worse, and I was raised watching videos that showed military-esque individuals going around. Tattooing people with 666. And the message was, don't you dare get that tattoo. That seemed to be the idea that the end times represent a sort of litmus test. Like, right in step with the kind of free will mentality of, you got to have Jesus in your heart when this day comes. And you read the, the thief in the night. This preparedness is required. So there's this immense idea or push in the religion that I was raised from, which I could call Christianity, but I'd rather not that, oh my gosh, if you are asleep when the progressives take power in the White House, you are screwed. <laughs> that being said, I went to a very nice school that gave me a lot of new books to read, and I sat before various professors that conveyed this idea. That the divine determinism is a powerful and real way to understand rational biblicism, the Old Testament, and how it actually can feed in and meet the New Testament and, and both their ideologically. It became this powerful understanding that says, I see now that it's God's hand. We are just simply the glove. So I can't tell if the end times are like a party, in the sense that let it come about, let God bring it into the world, so be it, because I will know how still to proclaim the same God that has chosen me from this great West Coast society, or if it's supposed to be super sad, and I can't figure out why it would be super sad. Right? Because the worst thing you could do in my old religion would be kind of sort of threat to convert you by a tattoo, which sounds a little too mystical for me now, or uh, kill you, which doesn't seem like a big deal for and, I'm sorry, not following you in, in your old way of Oh, in the old religion, it's like, if you don't take the mark of the beast, and people talk about the cru- like being crucified yeah. again and all the fun stuff, the Romans. like, like, okay. we Christians, we need to work on our trauma. But the point still is. Like, I don't get the big deal. I've been through the end of the world several times, being this old now. And I'm also from Los Angeles. And so what if, so what if you want to give me a tattoo? Like, God is written on my heart. So I don't know why this end-time thing seems to be such a bummer. Do you understand my I meaning? Yeah. Have I said it's a bummer? I'm
1: not saying it's a bummer. Oh, good. I think it's exciting. I think it's exciting, too. Now, there's two sides of the end. See, most of us are not as tough as you are. Okay. So when I contemplate this being the end of time, if I know enough about the end of time, I realize there's going to be a lot of pain, suffering, destruction. It's not going to go well for somebody. Now, we make a mistake if we think that God's focus is on the Pacific Northwest. Sure. <laughs> no, his focus is on Israel and the neighbors. Most of the really, really bad stuff is going to happen there and we are going to be watching it on television or hearing it. If an EMP doesn't hit first, we're going to be hearing about it, and we're going to watch it, and we're hearing it. However, it is such a big event, and it involves, it entails, the spirit of truth being taken out of the way. Well, I think that's probably worldwide. And with the spirit of truth being taken out of the way, that's going to make life in our culture a little hotter and uncomfortable for believers. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, ultimately, the New Testament says that's a good thing. You get to be treated like Jesus was and the prophets. And you want to be treated like Jesus and the prophets because it means you're right where you ought to be. So it's a good thing, it's a thing to celebrate, and yet is it a thing to fear? I fear it. (laughs) Why? Because I'm not as tough as you are.
2: Well, but it's
1: the good news now
2: and in the end times. It's the good news. Like, that sure. Jesus is a meaningful God, that he yeah. has come into our history and into our narrative to speak to the truth of us. That's profound,
1: even if you have to suffer for it. Oh, absolutely. Okay. But if you have to suffer for it,
2: you suffer. But, <laughs> for it. That's the rub. <laughs>
1: Church rules were like so it didn't yeah. suffer yeah. as Like I also don't understand your withdrawal,
2: of the spirit of truth thing, because you seem to be like, and it's going to be like Thunderdome from Mad Max. But I've been to plenty of churches where I was pretty sure the spirit of truth wasn't there, and so it feels like the Pharisees, the model of the way the Jews have screwed up, not withdraw the spirit of truth, and we're going to have church just fine. We'll continue. Right, propagating a morality that doesn't really need a God, because we can just walk around until like, we're all okay. So, I don't foresee the heat gets turned up. Well, maybe you get relegated to the back of the church. Like, they come through with guns, that's fine, but I can see, think of a lot worse things for society. Mostly, I was in American Christianity from the day I was born until now, and I don't get those people. I see people gathered together, and they seem to want to create a morality, as the Pharisees did. That is antithetical toward the bravery and the sacrifice of faith toward God. Okay. So, help me out. Well,
1: most of us, in fact, Revelation calls it a time of testing. Now, I think it's primarily talking about the Jews in Israel. But as an analog, I think the end of the present time is going to be a time of testing for believers. Now, why is it a time of testing? Because most of us don't like to suffer. And so, the choice that is going to be before us is, are you willing to persist? in believing and obeying and following Jesus and suffer for it? Or when all is said and done, you want to rethink this whole Jesus thing and give up on that because hey, you're going to suffer before? But I mean, think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane.
2: But I'm thinking of Did Peter denying Christ before the crow. Even that you say choice, but I don't see the choice. Because the... I'm, elect, sorry, sorry. I'm thinking of Peter before the crow. Peter himself denied Christ three times. Right. He come to my door and say, are you Christian? Uh, sure. I would have to have a long theological discussion about American Christianity, and its conception in the States, and how it manifests through the evangelicals and really grand. Once we got to the end of the conversation, if they were not (laughs) bored to death, we might be able to use the word Christian to apply ourselves. So, I still don't know what the choice is. I still don't see the trials. Well, I'm sure it's
1: going to be a very individual thing. Sure. It's going to be a very individual thing, and we're going to be sorted out. There are going to be a lot of the Christians that you're talking about who are going to bail like crazy. If it's going to cost me, I'm not interested in even identifying with Jesus and church and so on. You're also going to have a lot of persecution coming from the so-called Christians. Mm-hmm. Because they're going to be given over to a faith that's not the faith. And they're going to see people who actually believe the authentic faith as an enemy, as a thorn in their side. And they'll join in the persecution. Much like the church in Germany did in the time of
2: of Hitler. For sure. Or the Republican Party during the War thing. I get it. You're right.
1: <laughs> well, you know,
2: I don't know if you, you're reacting to this, but I remember
0: during those times during the Jesus movement that a lot of preachers and pastors used prophecy in a way to kind of like scare you into him. Scare you into him. I nice think But, well, they would say how if you take the mark of and then you better right. you know, like Billy Graham to say, you know, you better get your straight before you end up on a slab because that's the last chance you got. And I think my enlightened friend here, he realizes that it's all in God's hands and therefore we, we can rest in that. So learning about the end times isn't all about preparing yourself to make the right decision at the right time. It's all about it's actually more about from my perspective, it's about encouragement. It's about knowing that during those times, if you ever find yourself in that position where you seem to be defending yourself against idiots, you just basically remember that you we were told in advance this was going to happen, and don't take it out as anything that's going to threaten your, your destiny. Just know that your faith... Not only high. that,
1: but it's worth it. So you die. Now, it takes a significant understanding to be able to have that perspective. And a lot of Christians throughout the times have not had that understanding, and they're driven by their fear. And a lot of people, a lot of the theology that you're talking about is fear-driven. We must avoid being fear-driven in everything that we do and in everything that we think and how we process all of this. This is not about being scared. This is about being enlightened. About, as Daniel puts it, being those with insight. Knowing who God is, knowing what He's up to, knowing that He's right on track, As I said several weeks ago, before this is over, it's going to look like God lost. Well, if we don't know that looking like God lost is right on schedule, that's going to shake a lot of people. Don't be shaken. It's right on schedule. It's exactly how God said it was going to play out. He's going to pull it out of the fire at the end, and everyone will know that Jesus is king at the end. But it's after it looking like God and his son Jesus were full of it. They didn't know what they were talking about because Islam is, or whoever, is in the ascendancy and has beaten them and has defeated them. So if we don't know that ahead of time, then we're going into this thing without insight, without understanding. Uh, One more.
0: Your use of the word Christian is confusing to me because if we are Christ's, we can't be lost. If he has chosen us, we can't be lost.
3: He's chosen us, he's guaranteed, that he'll complete that work. But you're saying Christians will bail
1: okay. because of fear. So would you decline yeah,
3: I, that term?
1: Yeah, many of us have been habituated into using the word Christian the way the Bible uses the word saint, the ones who have been sanctified. But the problem is history has shown, has given birth to a religion that is the Christian religion. And all kinds of people identify with various factions or various traditions within the Christian religion who are not actually the people that the New Testament would call the saints, on The ones that bail are the ones that are adherents to the Christian religion, but they have never been sanctified by the Spirit of truth. And their unbelief is revealed by how they do under the test of persecution and tribulation
0: that kind of thing, so don't, can't, I've kept you too long, so I'll